1: Welcome to that's messed up an SVU podcast. I am Lisa, and Should I, I am not have Kara, done that. And <laughs> why did you pause <laughs> for so long? Is
0: it because I said hootie who? <laughs> I think we're on a lag. Like I think we're lagging because of hotel internet. So <laughs> we're on the Hyatt
1: internet. We are in Cleveland. The wide release is on Halloween. Spooky boo.
0: Um, Oh my gosh Happy Halloween You little You little dick wolf babies I hope everybody had a I hope everybody's wearing a Rollins or Olivia Benson inspired costume Or I don't know Maybe you're the Q-tip guy From that episode I would love some deep cut (laughs) Halloween costumes Let us know guys
1: Yeah tag us in your Halloween costumes If you're doing any SVU stuff People have come to our live show Dressed as people from the show And it's usually a really big treat for us Yes we get really excited. What I'm not excited about. Yeah,
0: we get a lot of Amanda Rollins because I Yeah, think we're, there's
1: a lag. I think everyone, I think we put out a really high quality product and maybe this will be weird for them, but we're women on the go. I don't know. We're in a Titanic looking hotel. <laughs> But last time we were on the other side of the hotel and it was such a far walk on the cart and I'm
0: so glad we're above the lobby. I feel blessed. Yes, I remember. I, we're, down, we're right down the street from the presidential suite and I'd love to know. We're down the hall. I'd love to know what it looks like. I'm hoping to get a peek.
1: Yeah, I noticed the presidential suite sign as well and I went, oh, I want to know. I want to know. But... <laughs>
0: Whatever. Um, obviously I need to take a moment because we are coming to you live from adjacent hotel rooms. So you do know we are on the road We're next week we will be kicking off our, uh, Salt Lake City and the Midwest tour, uh, leg. So on, a, on November 4th, we're going to be at Salt Lake City, uh, On the 5th, we're going to be in Chicago. Guys, we're playing Park West in Chicago. Lisa knows Chicago better than I do, but it's a iconic venue. Please come see us there. Then we're doing Madison, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, and St. Louis. Um, all in a row in that uh, week of, August, of November. So please come see us. And then Sacramento, we're coming to you in mid-December. And New York, we added a second show, babies. Our six o'clock show was basically sold out. And then our nine o'clock show has been added. So let's close the night with another full house. Come see us in New York. And then yeah, Philly on the 17th. And we haven't announced it on the pod yet, but it's been on a little bit on social media. We are going to be in Seattle. We're coming back, Seattle, to uh, the, the Wet Comedy Festival, I believe it's called, which makes sense because Seattle is damp. But um, I believe our show is on um, Saturday, the 6th of January, but that's all going to be on our Instagram and our That's Best Uplive.com website where you can get tickets for all the shows I just mentioned, so... Coming to you, come see us. I saw the January 6th of it all
1: because I'm doing stand-up that night too. And I, uh, the big (laughs) flyer says January 6th and (laughs) it does have name recognition. I wonder if it'll prevail like 9-11 or go with the wind, but... Yeah. January 6th is fresh in all of our minds, so. But I am, um, I am doing stand-up in Salt Lake City, San Diego. Los Angeles, November 2nd. Um, I think that's it. There might be another city. I'm doing the best I can.
0: Oh, also, Lisa's doing stand-up on January 6th. We're January 7th. So come see us at the Wet Comedy Festival in Seattle. Sorry for all the dates. Um, We are having some travel things today. I just um, flew in this morning to Cleveland on a red eye, which, you know, those are always fun. I did have my own row, a blessing from above. Um, So I really stretched out and let my entire side go numb for a nice flight. And then I got here and we'd stayed at this hotel before and it seemed like they had so many rooms and it was pretty empty. And so I was like, oh, I won't even like try to get in it the night before. I'll just like go. I get here and they're like, yeah, we're fully booked. There's a conference in town. No rooms till, till noon. It's 7.30 in the morning and I've gotten about two hours of sleep on a red eye. I'm like, no rooms till noon. Okay. Not even a little love seat anywhere to sit. There are just four upright chairs in a circle. And I'm sitting next to a man watching videos with his sound on. Again, I do not condone this. And... I just, I just fall asleep sitting up. Eventually, everybody that's sitting in the chairs is gone. It's a quiet time. It's just Kara and the people that work in the lobby. And I'm sitting up, sleeping upright. A woman comes up to me that works at the hotel and taps me on the shoulder and goes, Ma'am, are you all right? And I go, Yeah. She's like, Can I help you? I go, I'm waiting for a room. Like, in what what world am I just hanging out at this Ohio fucking Hyatt just? sitting here sleeping. Like I'm wearing clean clothes. I've got a carry on bag with a laptop on my lap. Like, what do you think I'm doing? I'm too old to be a runaway. So I don't understand what you think is going on.
1: She's a little runaway.
0: Yeah. Hopefully that's off key enough. We can keep it in. (laughs) I like your singing. Um, And so she goes, Oh, are you, are you ready for first available room? And I go, Yes, I'm sitting upright sleeping like a crazy person. Give me a fucking janitor's closet. I don't even care. So then she comes back and at 9 a.m. She has a room for me and I'm like, great. So it wasn't noon. It was nine and I could go to sleep. But yeah. I just, I couldn't imagine what she woke me up so gently. Like, let me take care of this indigent woman in a that's messed up purple sweatshirt. Like I'm wearing merch from my podcast. Like I don't look like I'm here to make a new home in your lobby. Oh my
1: God. I saw your purple sweatshirt and on your Instagram and I got jealous. I, I'm like, where is mine? It's probably hanging somewhere, but I'm like, where the fuck is my purple sweatshirt? It's so fucking cute. Listen, we have cute merch. <sighs> Um, <laughs> I had a really pleasant lift ride. This guy, oh, yeah? he really loves zoos and aquariums. And listen, so do I. So we really bonded. <laughs> we And we talked, um, you know, <laughs> animals and, um, the zoos they stay in. It was just like fun. He used to work at an aquarium gift shop. And he said the number one toy that would sell out is unicorns and it's like what the fuck you're at an aquarium what are you buying unicorns for and he goes they were sold out we couldn't keep the unicorns in stock and he goes and all the parents would fight with their kids and be like why are you getting a unicorn we're at the aquarium like look at all these fish and the kids (laughs) were like fuck that and um, and I just like liked that little tidbit because you can get a Norwalk which is a real life unicorn of the sea Yeah. (laughs) which was it our friend or was it
0: you that didn't know they were real until kind of recently it was famously I (laughs) did not know that narwhals were real and our both of our friends child and my child wore the same narwhal in the onesie and at one point I was like well they're not real and my husband was like yes they are I thought they were like unicorns I thought they were magical creatures I had never heard of a narwhal yeah I mean if it wasn't
1: for the shed aquarium in Chicago I don't know if I would know that information but I don't know I also, I also feel like because we record so far in advance and we have to like do a lot of flip-flopping, like all the Taylor Swift stuff I want to talk about is already outdated. You know what I mean? But they went to the Waverly Inn for a date and that is a restaurant that is dear to my heart. So I like that. I feel connected. And they went to Nobu, which I'm into. Get a black miso cod. Delicious.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Here's another celebrity couple I've never really gotten your take on, and maybe you're going to give me a big I don't care. But uh, where are you on Kylie and T Shell? Kylie Jenner and Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) Okay. Um, I hope it's not real, but maybe
1: they have a lot in common. Like, it's just, I guess they're both fashion young and hot. I I don't know. Is he a stepdaddy? Like, I, I just, I know, I can't imagine <laughs> what is going on, and maybe because he was in Little Women, I think he's smarter than he is. Like to me, he's like this thespian, and she's like a vapid idiot, right? But you know, she is right. a businesswoman, so that's rude. And I do love the way she parents. All the videos of her and her child are so cute. Yeah, She's really patient. That little baby and sweet. Stormy is really cute. She's
0: well, she really too cute. Now, right? Yeah,
1: I don't know if we've seen
0: him or I haven't,
1: but. I mean, I don't know. It just seems
0: weird, but good for them, honestly. I saw something on my Instagram recently that was like, Timothy Chalamet wants his relationship to be private. And I was like, okay, well, you guys could literally buy an island to go hang out on, but you're out. Like, you're out in the public. People are seeing you. But uh, it's a a wild relationship. I just didn't think any of the Kardashians would be banging Oscar nominees. I didn't think.
1: What are you talking
0: about? The world surprises you.
1: What do you mean? I just feel they've conquered the NBA. They conquered music. And what's next? Yeah, you're right. Acting was next. Uh, Acting was next. So I just didn't see it. I just didn't see it. No, what I want to know is, let's say these are PR relationships, you know? Like, are they still fucking and it's fun and they have a vibe and they're in on it? Are they sitting in silence? Are they even eating dinner? When they're seen at someone's house, like, what are they doing in there? Or do they just feed the the tabloids, the stories of who slept where and they're not even going to each other's homes? Like, I just want to know everything.
0: And yeah. we do have friends that
1: were at the SNL party with them. And I have to get some information. I'll get some intel.
0: Yeah, like, how real does it
1: seem? And I don't care either way, but I, I do care. I'm also so behind on Bravo. It's sick. It's sick. Listen, well, let's start. I'm I'm so grit? behind.
0: I'm seeing memes. I'm seeing memes of the finale. You guys are writing, going, I can't wait to hear your guys' take on the finale. Haven't watched it yet. It's so sad. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, I'll obviously have watched it. I can't make it till Halloween, but...
1: No, but they're probably going to hear about it on Christmas. Like, Christmas will happen and you're like, wow, you're talking about the finale of Roni. Cool. Um, (laughs) Wow. Cleveland looks beautiful out the window. Wow. I can't wait to close the shutters and sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Block out the light of Cleveland. (laughs) Yeah. And eat my little snacks that my mom packed me.
0: Oh, not to be a downer, but this is our first um, episode since the, the amazing Joanna Merlin passed away. She played Judge Petrovsky, I tried to find the email where she passed on our podcast, but I can't find it. But obviously, I do remember that she said, sounds fun, but not at this time or something like that. So I like the idea that she even knew our podcast existed and thought it's, quote unquote, sounded fun. (laughs) Um, So I... It's crazy because you watch episodes where she's only in one scene, two scenes. She's such a scene stealer. She's so good We all will remember how she would call Cabot Alexandra. That's exactly what I was
1: thinking in my head right now. Oh my God,
0: cute. Yeah. And I just, yeah. So we just, we posted it on our um, Instagram, obviously, but we hadn't had a chance to talk about it. We love her. She is the most beloved. Like she
1: really is. And she is such a staple and we will think about her positively for the there's other judges
0: we've you know we've got Mordock we've got Lois Lewis Louise we've got um, so many judges that we like Uh, there's Zosha Mamet's mother there's there's the the gym is that the gym teacher one I don't know she's got the short hair and like very Connecticut sort of way of talking. Um, there's also but, like um, the gray-haired guy, and then all the judge,
1: the guy who tends his roses, but oh, also yeah. all the pedophile judges. But also um, Corey Horowitz, <laughs> but that's not his name.
0: Hashi, Hashi Horowitz. Horowitz, but yeah. is he a judge? He becomes a judge. Oh, he Shocking becomes like. a judge. That's what I like. Oh, there's Georgie from Girls. I mean, I mean, from Sisters. Excuse me, not Girls. Sisters. There's so many good judges, but Petrovsky is a cut above, and we hope she. Her family is doing well and she's resting in peace. Um, I don't really know Oh, my God. Casey found
1: the email. Oh, my God. Do you want to read it since you've read it before? Okay.
0: So this is from Joanna Merlin. This is an email she sent to our booker. My apologies. I thought I had responded, but obviously was mistaken. I appreciate your invitation and the show sounds like fun, but I must decline. Too many reasons to explain, but I cannot participate. Happy Valentine's Day. Best, Joanna Merlin. Ah! Oh, my gosh. Casey, I I'm so glad you found that.
1: I can't believe that he that she wrote Happy Valentine's Day.
0: Yeah. That is so sweet. And like, I'm sure the reasons were just like, she's like, I'm at the end of my life and I really don't need to be doing a weird podcast. But, you know...
1: Also, this podcast is extra weird right now Because me and you are in identical hotel rooms And it's like the matrix shifted Like this could be one of the things where people are like This is how we know We're in a, you know, simulation
0: Wait, Casey, take a screenshot This is really funny We're both just sitting in our hotel rooms Same exact artwork behind us Yeah, we're just in a It's just um, for technical reason It doesn't make sense for us to be in the same room So we're in adjacent (laughs) hotel rooms We can hear each other through the wall And we're doing our intros on our beds. I'm also um, doing the craziest thing, which is
1: unraveling a crinkly candy, which is yeah. like such a funny thing. If that thing. were
0: me, you would be like, What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, let's get this started. Yeah, we're going to get the show on the road, guys. We've got a good episode for you. Don't go anywhere. Okay, we are going back to 2001 babies' Secrets Season 2, Episode 12. And I believe we were prompted to do this episode, Lisa, because you caught it on TV or something, right?
1: Well, I caught like the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes of it. And I was like, what is this? I've never seen this in my whole fucking life. And then all the listeners were like, it's secrets, it's secrets. And then watching it, I do remember some of the red herrings and the suspects and things are coming together in a way um, that I I know that I had seen it. But um, yeah, that's what prompted it. And it came out February 2nd, 2001. Shout out to my brother-in-law. Elon, that's his birthday, and shout out to Sydney
0: Washington. And that is also her birthday, Groundhog Day. <laughs> oh yeah, Groundhog Day, two thousand one. Um, I also remember watching this episode a bunch of times, but could not remember the ending. Like until I saw it. Like when I was doing this episode, like I was like, "Who ends up doing it? Isn't it a couple of her students?" Like because there is an episode where teach where a teacher is killed by her students, and so I was having fun, you know, kind of rediscovering a new ending as well. So here we go. We open on a super entering an apartment to fix the shitter. Very classic. And classical music is playing. It is a very large New York apartment. He cannot find her. He's like searching various rooms. And when he opens the bedroom, he does find, dun dun a naked woman face down on the bed, and the room has been ransacked. Cut to Benson and Stabler arriving. And he's like, Uh, who turned on the radio? And it's like, Stabler, when have we ever seen CSU just like start jamming some tunes while they process a scene? Like, obviously, that's not what happened. Um, CSU technician Harry Martin, who I looked up and has been on a dozen episodes of this show in seasons one through four, but I am getting nothing from his face in terms of recognition, tells Stabler that It was on when she was found. And so he tells them the victim's name is Marnie Owens, age 37, lived alone. This show loves a Marnie. I've never met a Marnie in real life. Have you ever met a Marnie? No, I just think about the show Girls. Yeah, there's Marnie from Girls. There was Marnie in the episode Totem. There's Marnie in this. I just have never met a Marnie. And they say her name so many times in this episode. Like, Is Marnie a diminutive for something, I wonder? Anyway... Just wondering. Uh, They finally kill the music. Uh, The super explains that Marnie called the night before and said the toilet was keeping her awake. And he looks very upset over what he has gone through, like finding the body. And you know, he doesn't look like he did it. He tells them that when he got there, the door was closed. He thought maybe she slept through her alarm. And I was like, oh, like me on 9-11 because I fully slept through a lot of it uh, because I was sleeping through class. And uh, my alarm clock kept being like twin towers. I was like, what is happening? These DJs are saying some weird shit. It was a weird way to wake up. Uh, Melinda calls them into the bedroom where the camera really drinks in the dead body. Like they do not do shots like this anymore. Like it was a full like ankle to wrist shot of the body, like moving slowly up her body to show you this like dead woman. Melinda tells them fluid and bruising around the genitals, cause of death is manual strangulation. uh, And that she's been dead about 10 to 12 hours. and, And we see that she did put up a fight. We'll know more after the autopsy, as always. We always know more after the autopsy. Michael Bodden. Suddenly, the phone starts ringing, and Stable's like, nobody pick it up. And she goes on the answering machine. This is Marnie. You know the drill, which is kind of funny way to put on your answer. Very, not like, 90s way to put uh, leave your answering machine. A woman on the answering machine says, hi, it's Ruth. It's 10 a.m. We're starting to worry. Call us. And the caller ID says NYC schools. So... Elliot clocks the, the wall behind her desk is covered in awards for being the world's best teacher. And then Stabler goes, school's out. And it's like, you're no Jerry Orbach at this point. <laughs> We're only on season two. You are not that good at the pun, like the punny one-liners yet. So now top of act one, Craig can't believe that this woman survived teaching in one of the city's worst high schools, but isn't safe in her own apartment. And I guess he just thinks it's crazy that a student didn't kill her. Like, I don't know. That just seems like it's not really related. Um, But no doorman, no forced entry, no boyfriend. The dining room was set up like a classroom. She seemed like a dedicated teacher. The super has a clean record and an alibi. And he looked sad. So that means he didn't do it. They found a half-empty bottle of Prozac. And that becomes a huge part of the episode. Because, like, I guess medication for mental health twenty two years ago was not as commonplace because everybody's very like, the Prozac, the Prozac, the whole time. And uh, somebody says if we had her job, we might all be depressed. I forgot, probably Stabler. Uh, yeah, but it's like you do work at SVU, yeah. sir. <laughs> I bet a little antidepressant would help you forget about the like toddler you just found dead last week. But- He refuses to go to any therapy, so he'll never get any medication. She doesn't have any therapy appointments in her date book, just tutoring appointments. And the last one was Ethan Chance at six o'clock the night before. So Cragen sends Benson and Stabler to the high school to find out what's up. And I bet Stabler knows exactly where they were going and knows a shortcut to get there because he is an encyclopedia of New York City schools. At Douglas MacArthur High School, Benson and Stabler are walking and talking with the principal who's like, oh my God, Marnie was so special. She was a teacher I'd like to clone. She transformed kids who were so behind into kids that were getting into college And she tutored her most challenging students for free. And she had seniors write plays about their lives. Like she seems very dangerous. Minds Michelle Pfeiffer situation. Like she's really killing it and connecting with the kids. Uh, She never really shared much about her life outside. The the principal says, and she's like, we were friends at school, but outside, like we never were grabbing a drink or anything. Um, They said she missed a meeting on Friday, which was the first time in five years. They're like, what's the deal with Ethan Chance? She goes, oh, that's one of her prodigies, a kid from a drug corner who has a real shot at college now. She gets choked up showing them Marnie's classroom and then leaves to go get Ethan. Uh, there's a vigil on her desk, like gifts, flowers. People are like kind of standing by it, looking upset. And some people are leaving stuff. There, one mom goes, are you guys the cops? And she's like, my daughter's going to graduate because of Marnie. you got to find the man who did this to us. Uh, And Ethan, it turns out, never showed up for school that morning. So that's not good news. Uh, He doesn't have a dad in the picture, and his mom is a teller at a bank on Lafayette. So that's very impressive. I feel like that the principal just, like, knows what the mom does and where she works, too. Like, I wonder if they asked my kid's principal if they'd be like, oh, she's a podcaster, sex crimes. You could probably find her in her garage right now, (laughs) like, if you ask the principal. (laughs) I would love that. Um, I don't think the principal knows who I am. Um. So now they go and talk to Ethan's mom, and it is friend of the pod, Saida Erica Ecolona, aka Narda Lee. We did interview her. She um, is in so many episodes.
1: Yes. She pops yes. up so much in SVU. It is incredible.
0: Yeah, she. It was just in an episode that we covered at one of our live shows called "And Just Look Like" and or "Just Look Like One," and so we've been getting a lot of extra naughty in our lives lately. So she thought Ethan went to school early, and she's worried. She's like, Miss Owens is not going to tolerate him missing school. Um, but then they break the news like, uh Oh, Miss Owens has been murdered, and she goes, Oh dear God, no! And she's like, I owe her a lot. She turned Ethan around, showed him that there was a better life than dealing drugs. She told him she would not be bringing him a care package in the slammer. So. Miss Owens was helping turn his ass around. He came home at 11 o'clock that night, she says. Um, The mom feels the vibe that they're suspicious of her son. And she's like, this is not him. No way. He's been in trouble with drugs, but he's straightened out. He's a good boy. They're like, okay, well, did he say anything about tutoring? And she goes, well, he said Miss Owens yelled at him when she asked why he stormed off to his room, slammed the door. When she woke up this morning, he was gone. Doesn't sound great. She tells them that when he used to cut school, he'd hang out with these losers on Suffolk and Rivington. So now we cut to Munch and Finn in the freezing New York City air interviewing an old lady neighbor of Marnie's. She's like, we were neighbors for six years. She came to visit me at rehab when I fell last year. She's such a nice girl. Not like that other one down the hall and calls her a kurva, which it, I, is our resident Yiddish translator Munch says means whore, but I Googled it and it also means slut and bitch. So we love that. Uh, <laughs> hey, how loud is it said? K-U-R-V-E-H is what it said in, uh, on Google. Irvah. I'm yeah. obsessed. Yeah, so we can start being like, Curva, please. Um, she noticed that one of Marnie's students went into her apartment around supper time. He looked like a hood. And this woman is obviously like, uh, Karen, like she seems like she's racist with a side of slut shaming. And she says... He was a black kid with a brown jacket. Some She heard some loud voices while she was eating her dinner, but she couldn't hear much. She's old. Her son had to get her special headphones so she could hear my Rosie. And I'm assuming she's talking about the Rosie O'Donnell talk show, which I did name Rosie after Rosie O'Donnell. Um, so that means a lot to me. I didn't, but can you imagine if I did? So regarding boyfriends, the only one she ever saw was Byron, a doctor, and she hasn't seen him in a while. Regarding family, her parents are dead. Her brother Jordan is all she has left and she hasn't seen him for years. Wow, this woman knows a lot about Marnie's life. For a neighbor, cut to the body identification. Jordan, the brother, is there and he's like, I told my dumb dead sister she had to have a doorman. Like, I love like in hindsight, that's like how he's grieving is to like blame her for not having a doorman. Finn and Munch ask about the doctor boyfriend. And the brother's like, boyfriend, try a fair. He's married. So we find out his name is Byron Marks and he's a surgeon at Bellevue. He also told her to stay away from the married guy. So this guy seems like a really fun brother. Cut to Benson and Stabler arriving on a street corner. Rap is blaring. Kids are gathered in a group on the sidewalk. And they're like, you seen Ethan? And they go, Ethan Hawk, you got the wrong hood, man. And I do love that. <laughs> Like the cops pulling up being like, excuse me, have you guys seen the star of uh, Before M- Before Midnight, Ethan Hawke? So then Stabler goes, don't play us. He's such a dork. Uh, he holds up the picture and they're like, oh, little E, he's too good for us now. They start busting their balls about skipping school. Like, why aren't you guys in school? And then the kids are like, I got the flu. <clears throat> and it's the other ones like, it's contagious. <clears throat> so these kids are funny. Uh, Get them one, into an improv class. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Engage them.
0: Yes, build on their comedic timing, their sense of humor. I bet Marnie would have done that, sadly. She is gone. We're going to ask you one more time about Ethan. And if we don't like the answer, we play show and tell. And it's like, okay, Benson and Stabler with the stop and frisk. I don't love that. Like, I don't want to have to defend you guys. And they're annoyed because talking to the cops doesn't make them look good, like on the street if people see them. So when they start to move in for the arrest, they're like, okay, okay, okay. Last night he was complaining about his teacher in the schoolyard. He said they had a fight. He didn't say anything about it, though, like nothing about the fight. So now talking to the doctor, Byron, who says it wasn't really an affair. He and his wife were separated at the time. And they're like, oh, is that why you split? And he goes, well, that was a long time coming. He tells them that him and Marnie met in a mentoring program for inner city kids. And the last time he spoke to her was the night they broke up three months ago. He was looking for a relationship. She wasn't. He's a self-proclaimed nester. Uh, and was ready to settle down with Marnie and her commitment was to her kids at her school so last night he said he was at dinner with his new girlfriend and then spent the night at her apartment she's also a nester I don't I hate like I think it's just homebody is a better word but at Ethan's apartment the mom is desperate to help yeah a
1: nester sounds sinister in a way like you're making little nests in your home I don't trust it (laughs)
0: Or, yeah, I guess because empty nester has to do with kids, I just feel like it doesn't involve... It's not the same thing as just wanting to stay home. At Ethan's apartment, the mom is really desperate to help. She's like, I've called around everywhere to find him. I can't find him. They ask, can we check his room? She's like, sure. When they search it, Benson is like, wow, the room is really clean. And then they find a crumbled up piece of paper. And it looks like she was teaching more than just English, they say. The mom comes over to see it and goes, good Lord, what was she doing to my son? And we see the paper is a photo of Marnie naked and basically doing the bend and snap from Legally Blonde. Like she's just fully (laughs) bent over. (laughs) And uh, this is shocking because, you know, teacher of the year. And teachers are not allowed to be sexual or enjoy sex in any way. Um, At the precinct, they're updating Cragen. And And it's like like
1: famously that most teachers were sluts in high school. (laughs) They were the party animals. If you see a nurse or a teacher, that was a slut. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So,
1: yeah, they're going to be fucking... It's kind of the number one porn fantasy is teacher, student. Not that we support that. Right. But for them to not think teachers are out there fucking is...
0: Silly. Yeah. So the at the precinct, they're updating Cragen and he's like, get Marnie's PC down to computer crimes and like we'll see what else is on the hard drive. Maybe Ethan feels guilty and will show up at the funeral tomorrow, they say. So at St. James Church, we're at the day of the funeral, Stabler's in the car while Finn is outside undercover. They're looking out for Ethan. Finn looks like the biggest cop if you've ever seen one. He's just standing outside the funeral, like arms crossed over each other, looking straight ahead. Like he fully looks like a cop. So when the kid is passing to come into the church, he totally realizes it's a cop. He breaks out running. We hear screeching tires, sirens. Benson starts booking after him on the street. So does Finn. They finally grab him. Finn slams him against the wall and is like, that's for making me run on my bad knee. And I... I love that there's extra anger because he's like, I got a, I got a bum knee. He says, I didn't do anything. And they arrest him and said, your mother's looking for you. So that's the end of act one. In interrogation, they ask, why did you run? And he's quiet. He doesn't answer. And they this sc- guy,
1: his photo is like the main, that's the Hulu photo, I feel. Oh, like, I've okay. seen this man's face so many times. That's when it all clicked. When I saw his face is when it all clicked for me. Like, okay, I've seen this. Or just the thumbnail over and over again. Who knows?
0: Yeah, yeah. I saw a thumbnail of like a season two episode the other day that was Amaro and Rollins. I was like, this is a mistake, Hulu, but we've caught their mistakes before. Much like how they misnumber all of the episodes. Okay, so they slap down the naked picture of Marty in front of him. And then Ben goes, when did you two start knocking boots? And Ethan's like, what the fuck, what? And he feels bad because... The last time he saw her, he said he called her a whore. And then he's, but he's not like talking or giving them information. So Finn pulls him aside and goes, here's the deal, dude. You were the last to see her. You've got this picture of her. You ran. This all looks really bad for you. Give us something or you're fucked. And he goes, I didn't like have that picture. Little Camp gave me the picture. And they're like, who's Little Camp? And it's Marcus Cole. He said he found it messing around on the internet and that Ms. Owens was advertising for sex. Marcus said he was going to spread the picture all around school because Ms. Owens was on him about cutting class and not doing his work. So he was going to like revenge shame her. Um, and at the tutoring sesh, he showed Miss Owens the picture trying to warn her, then she starts yelling at him like it's his fault and tells him to get out. He denies doing anything wrong and he says he was just trying to help her. He went back the next morning before school to like apologize and he saw cops all over her place and he asked somebody in the crowd what happened and they said, "Oh, a woman was murdered on the third floor, a teacher." And he's really sad because he's like, "Miss Owens never judged me. She said I could be something and" I called her a whore and that's like the last words I said to her. So he's sad. And Benson's like, did she ever touch you? you? And he's even like even
1: act. Like if a student called you a whore, it'd be like, uh, okay, what? <laughs> that's
0: fucking. Yeah. I'm shocked. Yeah. Benson asks if he's, if she's ever touched him. It's like, Benson, I don't know. I don't know. It seems like a weird question after all of like, we've already established that he's like, wait, what? Nothing happened. And he goes, she never laid a hand on me. So coming out of that interview, Finn believes Ethan. And they're like, okay, what's the story with Marcus Cole? Stabler looks at the file and goes, well, 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 if it isn't flu boy. So it's one of the guys from the corner who was cutting school going, I have the flu. One of our comedians. Uh, They bring him in and he's lax. He's funny. He's been on this stage before and he's like, oh yeah, I found the picture online. I didn't make it. I'm just a consumer. And he didn't like her because she wasn't going to graduate him. And uh, Stabler leans in and like whispers the close talker that he is. And he goes, newsflash, you got to show up to class to graduate. Like he's so crazy how he tries his intimidation tactics. And he's like, yeah, but I wouldn't kill a bitch over fucking like not graduating. Like that's not my thing. He says, I'll take a blood test. I'll take any test you want. So on the other side of the glass, Cragen's like, well, that was too easy. It's probably not this guy. Munch says that Marnie didn't have any Prozac. We're back to the Prozac. I don't know where Munch is like, Marnie didn't have any Prozac in her system, according to the tox screen. What's going on? They're like, what about the brother? Let's check him out. Pay him a respectful visit. Meanwhile, at Computer Crimes, we've got our old pal Deirdre Lovejoy as the actress. And she was recently the doctor who on Born Psychopath, the kid fooled her into letting her out of the psych hospital. She's like, he's reformed. I don't know what to tell you. Not psycho anymore. Turns out he was. Uh, She says the history on the computer looks like a bad porno flick. And she's like, okay, so she ran the ad on this website and... Elliot goes The Love Studs website which is spelled L U V Studs and I love that and it is another entry into the bad website hall of fame that we are we know about on SVU like I just cannot believe websites used to look like this and this is where Marnie like advertised herself uh and she the Dear Love goes welcome to the red light district of the new millennium and they're like I don't understand. We see this huge page of Marnie in various bend and snap poses, and her name is right across the top, Marnie. Like, it seems pretty easy to just be like, Violet, you know, like change your name. Uh, especially, it's like, I know teachers that don't have public Instagrams, you know what I mean? Like, of them on their vacation. So, to go on like a full sex website and be like, my name's Marnie, here's my full face is wild. And The advertising, like, slogan on her page says, "'Hot babe looking for 10 hotter guys. I can take you all at once.'" And then the computer nerd lady pulls up the chat history from the last month. So Finn and Munch now, meanwhile, are at the restaurant of Marnie's brother to get answers. And uh, they're like, why was your sister on Prozac? And he's like, well, maybe the shrink I sent her to prescribed it. He tells them, I'll be honest with you. I've been preparing myself for this for a long time. (laughs) After all, no doorman. Anything could have happened. He says he knew about Marnie's secret life. He says some people shoot heroin. Marnie's drug was sex. He could tell because his room was next to hers when they grew up as teens and he heard everything, each time a different guy. He says, their mom died of cancer when he was a baby and the dad was either at work or drunk. And he never touched Marnie, but apparently would often tell her how nice her tits were. So, creepy dad. Uh, and he goes, I was just a kid. What was I supposed to do? So, now we're at a shrink's office. Uh, I think it's her, It's Marnie shrink. And he's explaining the concept of covert incest. I've never heard of this before. So I was happy to uh, learn about this term.
1: Always happy to learn about a new kind of incest.
0: Yes. Okay. So when I looked it up, it's actually emotional incest or covert incest. So there's two names for it. And it happens when a caregiver or parent relies on child for emotional needs that an adult relationship would usually provide. That's interesting to call it that. Like, I feel like I've seen that before of like people that treat their kids like a, like a partner in, in a weird way. we
1: watch way. a thing together? And, like, I feel like we just watched something together about this where it's like, if like your husband sucks, you put all of that into your son and it's like you're dating your son.
0: It's, it, I have to say, it's kind of a creepy vibe I get on like boy mom TikTok where it's like, like, it'll be a video of a woman being like, that feeling you get when you know that someday your son's going to marry another girl and leave you. And it's like, yikes. I've like never had that thought. Like, you know what I mean? Or like that feel when you know that no girl's ever going to be enough for your son. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know. I get a weird but I'm not saying it's covert incest. I'm just saying it's a vibe I don't like. Um, I
1: get a lot of um, joy out of mother-in-law BuzzFeed lists and Reddits. <laughs> Mother in laws be acting crazy. They will show up in a wedding dress at your wedding.
0: (laughs) They will just have shoulder
1: pads. Yeah. They might even wear a funeral outfit. These mother in laws that want to fuck their sons, they're out there being wild. Yeah. (laughs) But Um, still more harmless. I think the covert I don't know. Whatever.
0: Well, basically the shrink gets more into it. Yeah, the shrink gets more into it and it's more creepy. He's like, it's like when your dad watches you take a bath, probably into a later age, like tells dirty jokes, mentions his sex life to you. And then once you hit puberty, he says he starts admiring your body, buys you lingerie, takes you as a date to a business dinner, like creepy shit like that. So very very Donald and Ivanka, I'll be honest. (laughs) Like very Donald and Ivanka, covert incest. Let's get that going. So when, when a person who you know, lives with this kind of covert incest for years, grows up. It's like the only way she can relate to men is through sex because that's like how their daughter has, the father has conditioned them. So the Prozac is for the depression and which is very common in any kind of addiction. And Munch is like, well, that doesn't really sound like teacher of the year. And the guy's like, you don't get it. They're not having fun. This isn't like she's horny. She's numb. She's gripped by a force that she cannot control like an addict, like, and it won't stop until she has sex. So he's like, it's sad because Drug addiction, alcohol addiction, a lot of addictions are considered illnesses and you know treated as such by society, but sex addicts are considered perverts. And there's so much shame that they're looking for redemption, hence the whole teacher of the year thing. So she's so ashamed of her like sex addiction that she puts all of her time into helping these kids as if that will like redeem her as a member of society. And it's surprising she was able to keep the secret for so long at this school. Um, coming back into the precinct, Munch is telling this wild story to Finn about how once in Baltimore, he came to the office and everyone was staring at him and it turned out his ex-girlfriend had an exhibition across the street and it featured a huge painting of him during his free love days naked and it was on display and I guess everyone from his job had gone to see the art exhibit and then was looking at him weird. Such a strange story. And Finn goes, Serves you right for posing nude. And Munch is like, "Oh, come on! You must have some innermost secret." And Finn goes deadpan, "I'm a Republican." And I mean, this was many years. I feel like before Republican was a full slur that it is today. And I, I don't know if I believe it. Like, do you think he's kidding, or do you think he is?
1: This is so tough because obviously, I'm like, there's no fucking way you know he voted for like I don't. I I see Finn voting for Clinton. May and Gore. I just don't see Finn. but I also, you know, he's a contrarian. He yeah. likes to, he likes to be um, what I'm trying to find an example. I do
0: find it hard to imagine Finn clicking it for George W. Bush, but who it
1: knows? It is hard. I because but I see him being like, "My money's mine. I don't want to pay tax. You got to do." it. But yeah, he yeah, works yeah. in this industry, so he like. Knows the importance of social services and like community. So I'm just hoping it's a joke, but I could see it. You know, I could see him
0: liking Candace Owens, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, he's definitely listening to her podcast. Um, so anyway, they find out that there's 160. 162- because remember, he in that one episode where he was like, why are we helping
1: immigrants when we have people here that need help? Like, fuck that. Like, I could see yeah, him wanting to build a wall.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and he's a little bit like Munch. Why did you pose nude? Like, you know, or like, he's a little bit like, yeah, you get what you deserve for posing naked. And it's like, I never thought Finn was so, he loves to go to strip clubs, you know, and think yeah. nudity. But you know what? Everybody grows. This is his first season. Everybody learns and grows. Maybe they were trying to go somewhere with Finn that he also wore suits at this time cut to, you know, leather jacket time in a few seasons. So, Marnie got 162 different responses to her ad and um, she visited a lot of, a lot of these Places that are online, these chat rooms online have real life places where people can meet up, I guess they were saying. So, a place she's called a lot is called Pleasure Partners, and they own sw- a swingers club in Soho. And I hope it's not in competition with the swing set from the episode Bombshell. Do they have a nightly buffet? Who knows? Munch is like, Oh, are you an expert? And Craigan goes cold as ice and goes, I got that from the computer files. Like he just, Craigan's like, Stop fucking around. I don't go to swingers clubs. And so now they're at Flings, which is the name of the club. And it's a lot, like, there is not one man there that is not a white pot-bellied man with, like, a hairy chest. Like, it is not a good-looking clientele of the men. And then it's a lot of, like, women blondes in short, silky red robes just milling around. A guy walks up to Benson and Stabler and is like, oh, it's 85 bucks for a couple, cash up front. Very se- The cash up front is very sexy. Um, and you just hear a lot of generalized moaning in the background. And a woman tells Olivia, don't be nervous. We were all beginners once. Sabler goes, we're still beginners and flashes his badge. It's he, all of his jokes are f- falling for me this uh, this episode. He it's, again only season two. We haven't fully Neil Bear's just getting his footing and getting uh getting stabler better lines. So they ask about Marnie and they're like, oh, Marnie, she is not welcome here anymore. But they did not know that she was murdered. Um, They break the the news to them and they're like, well, she didn't follow the rules. She had a threesome with two married guys then she started an affair with one of them. And it turns out that one of the sex club's rules, this is so funny (laughs) to me, like this place that's like, no rules, free love. But the one of the rules is that you have to preserve the primary relationship. So if you come in with a person, you can't like discover that you have better sexual compatibility with another person and like leave your original partner. That's that such is a
1: fucked up rule. There's crazy. so many rules for safety. What is this um like Christian rule?
0: Like yeah. that, that's so Marriage weird. is sacred and you stay together for the kids no matter what. Like that, it's the craziest sex club rule of all How time. How about
1: a rule of no means
0: no? Like what the Yeah. So uh, they expelled. (laughs) Yeah, no phones, no pictures, confidentiality. Well, we don't know. We haven't seen their full constitution, but one of the laws is you got to stay with your partner. Um, So they expelled Marnie and her guy when his wife is the one that told them about the affair. Who is the guy that she was having the affair with that got expelled with her? Byron Marks, done, done. The doctor they talked to earlier. And then- I don't remember which one of them said it, but one of them goes, guess the doctor was in. Again, we're not killing it with these. But now they've got Byron in interrogation and he says, she came on to me and I was into it until um she dumped me. And as they're um, feeding him the version of the story they think happened, like you went over to her house, you wanted it, she wouldn't give it to you. Then this, guy, this guy's lawyer breezes in to shut shit down. And uh, they're like, Can your client consent to a blood test? And then the lawyer brings Byron into the corner and they whisper for a minute. And he goes, uh, okay, my client needs to clarify what he said, but we want to keep his wife out of it. They go, if you stop lying. And he's like, okay, great, fine. I'll stop lying, leave my wife out of it. They met in a chat room, not at a place where a volunteer program for inner city kids, which is a wild stretch of a lie. And they hooked up at Flings. She came on to him they, it started an affair and they all went well until it got out of control. He goes, we were having sex every day, sometimes two to three times a day at clubs, at hotels, in my office until we burned out and broke up. It was like, we just used each other up and threw each other away. Marnie called him that night at seven o'clock and said that she needed him. He shows up to her house. She's freaking out because she says a student found her shit on the internet. Again, why are you calling yourself Marnie? You can always argue that it's not you, um, So he says they had sex till 8.30 and when he left, she was alive. And he goes, you don't understand. It's like being possessed. It's like an uncontrollable, overwhelming urge and I have to satisfy it with sex. And then everything's fine until the next wave hits. He tells them that she usually took guys to the Majestic on 7th Avenue and if she needed a quick fix, she'd go to the club Um, And they're like, well, she was banned from flings. And he goes, no, there's another place. I went with her there once. It was like walking into hell. And aptly named because it is called Dante's Inferno. He didn't know she liked it so rough. Now we cut to the most wild police raid of a dark-ass warehouse with red lighting and the silhouettes of naked bodies. Everyone's rushing to put clothes on. There's it, it feels like there's 75 people in a room, I guess, all fucking each other. I don't really know. They tell them that the TV crews are outside and we're looking for people who know Marnie. And then Munch goes, though, I suspect you trade you people trade fluids more than names. Anyone who recognizes her, raise their hand that's not holding up your clothes. No one raises a hand. And they're like, all right, we'll say it again. If anyone tells us what they know, you get to go out the back door and everyone else gets to go be on TV. And they're like, so who knows Marnie? And now almost every single person raises their hand. So now we're in interrogation, and Craig is talking to some guy who I guess is like the ringleader of Dante's Inferno. They don't really introduce him. And he's like, no one's getting hurt. And he says, Marnie came in a couple times a week. She was good for business. She was as wild as they come. She wouldn't do buy, but she'd do gangbang after gangbang. He says he never participated because he's an entrepreneur. He can't like be messing with the product. One guy, he says, took a special interest in Marnie. And so he goes out to the holding room where all of these people from the orgy are hanging out. And he goes, it's that guy. And he points out this guy with a light bulb head and he brings him into interrogation. And he's like, am I charged with something? And Stabler goes, adultery. And the guy kind of stops talking. And I'm like, was that still, was adultery illegal in 2001? I I don't know. And I did not take the time to look it up. Uh, his name is Philip Montrose, and they ask him about Marnie, and he says, Oh, yeah, that school teacher that died in the paper. I read about it in the paper. And they're like, Cut the shit, or we do this in Rikers. And he's like, Uh, okay, I saw her picture. I looked, she looked hot. I emailed her. Like, he immediately like, is like, I, I think I saw a picture of that girl in the paper. And then he's like, All right, we fucked. He says she invited him to meet her at the Majestic. They hooked up and then. The next night, she goes, meet me at Dante's. He thought it was a restaurant and asked what was on the menu. And she ordered for both of us, sex with me and four other guys, he says. Uh, The place is an amusement park, and she was my favorite ride. And then Benson goes, or one of, sorry, one of them goes, a rough ride? And he goes, yeah, she liked it that way, and so did I. On Sunday night, he says he was at his in-laws trying to reconnect with his wife and two kids because they're separated. At their desks now, the gang is burning the midnight oil. Byron Marks' alibi checks out. He's not a killer. He's just a perv, which is like Finn proving the entire point of the episode, which is like, this guy has clearly explained to you that this is like a compulsion he can't control. And you're like, just a pervert. And Munch is arguing that this is a victimless crime. And Finn's like, unless you're Marnie. And he goes, well, her problem isn't that she had group sex. It's that she couldn't stop. And Munch is arguing that these are just normal people, consenting adults who like to get sweaty in a dimly lit warehouse and nobody gets hurt. So then these two start bickering and Daddy Cragen comes in to break it up and says, last time I checked, this was special victims unit and not the sex police, which is hilarious because that's what everyone else calls them. They're always like, oh, here comes the sex police, you know, or the panty police. Liv pipes in that Philip Montrose was arrested for criminal trespassing in Connecticut a couple months ago and that the Stamford police, where I have lived before, booked this guy for stalking. Uh, the and I guess they were told that Philip Montrose left Dante's because uh she wasn't there the night of the death, but he did go to her memorial service. Stabler holds up a picture and they're like, was it to pay his respects or stalk her to the grave? So now the cops are talking to Montrose again, and he's like, so what? I went to the service, like he had we had a great time together. I'm gonna miss her, uh, and he says the Connecticut thing was a misunderstanding. And Stabler points out most stalkers only stop when they found another target. And he's like, she wasn't only my favorite ride. She fucked every guy in that place. I'm sure a lot of people loved like ho- hooking up with her. And uh, he, they go, well, we checked on your alibi, and your wife hasn't seen you or your child support in three weeks. Why would you give the cops a fake alibi? And that he goes, she'll say anything to get back at me. And then he gets back to work because they're like at his workplace or like supervising a construction site or something. Benson remembers that Ethan told them someone at the building told him a woman was murdered, and maybe that was Montrose. This is a wild stretch in the plot. At the high school, they're showing a picture to a security guard at the school, and he goes, yeah, I have booted that guy from here twice the other day. He claimed he needed to use the restroom. Who pops into a high school to use the restroom? (laughs) Like, the guy goes, yeah, go to the restaurant across the street, weirdo. And then he came back 30 minutes later, and he saw him trying to try the gym door so they're all discussing it and they're like, Marnie might still be alive if she just called the cops, but then her secret gets out and her career is over. She was afraid of being judged and she was right. I mean, the cops themselves are judging her. They show the picture to Ethan of Philip Montrose and he goes, oh yeah, that's the guy in the crowd who told me that Marnie was murdered. So they knock on his apartment door with a warrant for a search and a warrant for his blood and he goes, I'm calling my lawyer. But then Finn finds his stalker scrapbook. Lots of pictures of Marnie with a telephoto lens and Philip has like a busted, like look on his face. Now we're at Rikers. The lawyer is arguing with Cabot that the scrapbook proves nothing. Cabot's like, "Lol, <laughs> your guy looks like a freak." It um, proves something. It proves something. Yeah. And Cabot's like, "This is actually just going to make my case stronger." And the lawyer's like, "Marnie makes Casanova look celibate." This, and they're like, "This doesn't look good for him." The scrapbook, other victims of stalking, witnesses that put him at her apartment the morning after her death, you know? So we cut to court. It's a grand jury hearing. And Ethan is testifying about his run-in with Montrose outside of Marnie's apartment building that that morning. He says that this guy told her a woman had been raped and murdered, a teacher. And I think actually he says raped and strangled because that's like an extra, the cause of death is like an extra detail. Cabot points out that Philip Montrose revealed a detail of the crime that only the police or the killer himself would know. And then a man walks in while Cabot is talking to the grand jury and whispers in her ear and then she excuses herself outside Montrose is with his lawyer who says Montrose wants to make a statement to the grand jury. And, uh, this guy who's playing his lawyer is Jeff McCarthy, who's playing attorney Math defense attorney Matthews. And he looks familiar, but I looked him up and it's nothing I've seen. Uh, we take it to Petrovsky. Petrovsky's chambers are like the red table talk of the SVU universe. It's like, bring it to the red table. So we go to Petrovsky's chambers and Cabot's like, notice was not given in a timely manner that he wants to testify. He declined testifying yesterday. And the lawyer's like, well... He changed his mind. And he argues that his client has the right to speak before the jury has voted. Cabot goes, he's going to poison the jury with her sexual history. And Petrovsky says, I'm about to call the disciplinary committee on your ass, Mr. Matthews. And then he goes, if you deny my client his rights and he's indicted, I will move for dismissal. And Petrovsky's like, and then I will have to grant it and Cabot will have to retry the whole case. I don't like it any more than you do, Alex, but you can get him on cross. He's a sitting duck because his lawyer is not allowed to object This is grand jury. It's different than regular, you know, cross-examination. So Montrose is on the stand talking about how he met Marnie and then their subsequent hangout at Dante's. On the night of her murder, he says, Marnie came to my apartment. She was upset because of the kid who found the internet ad. He asked her to have sex. She was insatiable. He says he did not kill her. He says he lied to police because of his bitter divorce and doesn't want to give his, you know, ex ammunition. He alleges that Marnie loved the photos from the stalker scrapbook, that they really excited her. And she goes, Cabot goes, you told police she was your favorite ride? And he's like, yep. And he says, the only reason he knew she had been strangled and raped is because someone else at the crime scene told him about that. Like, how do you think I found out? Someone else told me. It was just a little game of telephone. Such a coincidence. They're like, you followed her to her school. You followed her to her home. You were jealous because she was having sex with someone else. And he goes, you think I care about that slut? You have to care about someone to be jealous. She was a whore. And he says, she was asking for this to happen. She needed a fix. And who knows who she picked up on the way home from his apartment. Cabot's like, she needed a fix? You stalked a woman in Connecticut and now Marnie's dead. What about your fix? And then they kind of focus in on him and he looks guilty as hell and silent. Cabot goes to talk to Cragen and she says that Montrose put Marnie's sex life on trial and Cragen goes, yeah, law isn't always about justice. And she goes, who let you in on our dirty little secret? And Cragen goes, all the Marnies who came before. So Cabot's like, I think he's going to beat this. Fuck. And Cragen's like, I don't know, girl. I think you're killing it and I'd tell your ass if you were fucking up. So cut to the results getting handed to, to Cabot in court There is an indictment. That's good news, but it's not murder two. It's manslaughter one. The jury just couldn't get past her sex life, it seems. So he won't get life, but he'll get 15 to 25 to sit around and think about what he's done. She goes, I'll take that. Sable and Benson look bummed and they walk away and then Cabot walks away and then that's Dick Wolf, baby. What an episode. I love the ending. I don't love the ending. I I know. know I want to see the guy like get hauled off to jail, truly. Yeah. I do, but
1: God, it's like sluts deserve to live too. Yeah. I don't understand. It's like, cause you fuck, you can't live. Like, no yeah. one cares you're dead. It makes, I just, I don't get it. Call me, call me new fashioned, but
0: yeah. Well, this country is built on puritanical, you know, spirits. So that's, that's part of it. But like, she also wasn't, I mean, like, yes, sluts deserve to live, but she also had an addiction, you know, like she had a problem. So it's like, I do like that this show in season two in two thousand and one is like trying to bring up sex addiction as like, you know, a thing that people shouldn't be shamed for. It's pretty progressive for them. I'd never seen that on another show. Um well, Lisa, I don't know anything about the crimes that this is based on, so excited for your portion of the program. We'll be right back. <laughs>
1: Okay, so sadly, this is based on two dead teachers, both teaching in the Bronx. So that's pretty wild. Yeah, it's really close to the episode, I would say. And the crimes are really close to each other, even if they span, um, you know, decades of time. So the first case is based on a woman named Roseanne Quinn. And she was a 28-year-old teacher, and she taught at um, a school for deaf children. And the principal of the school, Francis Wilkins, he said that Roseanne was a very warm, outgoing person, and the children loved her, and she always made everything so interesting for them and so alive. She grew up in Jersey. Both her parents worked at Bell Laboratories, you know, kind of normal life, and she was very dedicated to her work and would often bring breakfast to her students because She was like, a lot of them have to travel so far to be here. They wake up too early. They don't get breakfast. And so she was just like really caring, would bring kids breakfast. And um, a lot of the articles are from the 70s because this is when it happened. And it is such old-timey language. Like um, the Times said, she had no regular boyfriend, but she was the type of girl who would have a guy in if he brought her home. Like, that's such a language from a different time. Yeah, It's basically like if a guy walked her home, she's bringing him in to fuck, but in this weird way. There is, there was a huge article that came out after this because there was a string of crimes and, like, New York was dangerous for single women and it was, like, there was a lot of discussions of should single women live alone in the city? What neighborhood should they live in? You're asking for it. There was just a lot of... Um, commotion over her being single and like going to bars Um, another old-timey thing that was written in the paper said this this set in motion an intense police effort involving more than 30 detectives to find a clue to the killer somewhere amid the numerous yet fragmented activities of an attractive single woman living in the interracial world of the west side it's it's reading yeah. 70s. Like, I don't know. It's just not how we uh, speak or write, or like articles don't sound like that anymore. So I was just But interested. this is interesting.
0: Like, they ca- they kind of touch on this in Mad Men when Peggy, and I don't think you watch Mad Men, but Peggy moves in, like, to the Upper West Side by herself um, in, like, the late 60s, early 70s. And it's like, what, Peggy? Like, you know. So, sadly, she was
1: found on New Year's Day, January 1973, in her Upper West Side apartment. And the body was found after the school, um, St. Joseph's School for the Deaf in the Bronx, uh, became alarmed because she didn't come uh, back to work after Christmas recess. So she missed two days of, like, January classes. And so it took a bit of time because, like, the murder happened, the break had to come back, the teachers had to notice, and then they contacted someone. And a colleague from the school went to her building, and the superintendent of the building opened the door to her apartment. And um, this was, and this is another thing that was strange. Every article described her apartment differently. So some said studio apartment. So it said efficiency apartment. And then some said a two-room apartment. And it's like, either way, who gives a shit? It's her apartment. And who cares (laughs) if it's small or big or how small it is, but it was on 72nd Street. And so so she was at 253rd, West 72nd Street. And that was right around the corner from a brownstone where in 1971, Patrice Leary, a 22-year-old private school teacher, was found bludgeoned to death in her apartment. Oh, my God. Yeah, and also in um, Roseanne's apartment building six months earlier of Quinn's murder, a drug dealer who lived in the building was killed in the building. So it's definitely not the Upper West Side that we know about. Yeah, this is
0: like a beautiful neighborhood today. (laughs) Like... Yeah. This would be like a really coveted place to live.
1: But I'm sure Columbia College was still there, right? Like
0: Columbia is an old school. But- yeah, but Columbia is up at like 120, 25th. Mm. Yeah. So, but like, th- this is, I've seen movies about this area in the 70s. It was not good.
1: So there was a delay in the crime being reported because the local precinct failed to notify the Central Police Commissions of the murder. So the first article that came out was January 5th. So the details of the crime were that she was knifed to death and then stabbed 14 times. And on January 5th, it was reported that she was sexually assaulted and raped. But on January 6th, the Times then reported that the chief medical examiner, John F. Fury, said there was no signs of forcible rape. She did have sexual relations within the 24 hours of her death, but there was no external or internal signs of force or brutality. So I don't really know what no one really knows what happened that night. Um, also, and I don't really fully understand this. There was a hollow sculpture bust of a woman had been placed on her face. What? Right?
0: That's fucking crazy. Yeah. But do you think it's one of those things where the person like couldn't look at what they'd done? So they like covered it up or something? I don't know.
1: I don't know. That's my um, SVU
0: pop psychology
1: and there were bruises on her face. The apartment was described as blood spattered by the DA Frank S. Hogan at a news conference. And at first, the police thought it stemmed from an argument, but they really had no leads. So they talked to about 25 of Quinn's friends and then close to 100 people in the area. 10 detectives went out into the neighborhood um, and just talked to everybody. She lived near a notorious drug park called Needle Park.
0: Yes, and I know where this is because one of the movies that I'm talking about was called Panic in Needle Park. Jared made me watch it. It's some old 70s movie. And it's literally, it's barely even a park. Now it's like a subway station, right? And if you ever get off the 2-3 train at 72nd Street, that's Needle Park right there. Now it's like flowers and like I've eaten Levain cookies sitting there. It's like a lovely little place. But like that's Needle Park. It's a very tiny like area.
1: Yeah, and I mean, yeah, seven, the 72nd train stop, I think it's like the Trader Joe's is there. You exactly. Know? It's like very... exactly, exactly,
0: exactly. Uh, there's a North Face store. Like, it's so nice. Like, nice meaning not Needle Park. Yeah,
1: one of the original suspects was a man who just the year before pled guilty to assaulting Quinn and spent several months in jail for that crime. But then the police received a tip, and the man who contacted them was a friend of the suspect, John Wayne Wilson. John Wayne, not a great name (laughs) for (laughs) war killers. Okay, so... And this person who called said that Wilson and Quinn were at a singles bar called W.M. Tweeds, and that was right across the street from her apartment, and she was a regular at the bar. And since... So this guy was with Wilson at the bar the same night. So they... So there was a sketch, there was a composite sketch made of a man as a material witness because someone, you know, people at the bar were like, she was with these two guys. And so he recognized himself in one of the sketches. And so he contacted the cops. Um, he is smart. Well, and not just the cops. He first contacted a lawyer and then the lawyer contacted the cops. So he is very smart and he um, listens to what we say. And, um, (laughs) so yeah, it was her usual bar. She would come in for a glass of wine and she talked to two men around 11 PM. And that's when the witness, um, went home and he left, and the other two stayed together. And so then they left together and they went to Quinn's apartment. And what is so wild is while the cops were sitting with the material witness talking about him in his apartment, the killer fucking called him. So, um, they got his location and information because he ended up calling exactly when the cops were there. And so they caught John Wayne Wilson, um, who was an Indiana drifter. They arrested him in Indianapolis less than a week later. And that was reported on January 10th, 1973. He had no known address or occupation and was sleeping at his younger brother's apartment at 9 a.m. when they arrested him. Detective John Lafferty and Patrick Toomey knocked on the door and just got his ass. He did not resist. He also had. Had five arrests in southern Florida since 1979 for disorderly conduct, loitering, and illegal entry and larceny. He was also arrested on larceny charges in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, he was serving a one-year sentence in Miami for illegal entry and larceny when he escaped from prison on July 6th, and then um, he really stayed out for a while. Obviously. Um, the lawyer for Wilson set up an insanity defense for the case. Um, he was held for five months under murder charges and then he hung himself in his jail cell at 23 years old. And the jail said he wasn't on suicide watch because that floor was overcrowded. So...
0: Well, I want to say one thing, which is that, wow, the cops got him so quickly. Like, one week yep. is, like, a really... Or, I mean, you know, 10 days from the time she was killed, but, like, then she wasn't found or whatever. But then, also motive just crazy like what I mean it's like she took him home they were just gonna hook up and then he just was like I'm gonna stab you to death
1: no one knows. I mean no one yeah. knows like yeah. the you know the cops did mention that it seemed like it stemmed out of an argument but that's probably just because of like the physical violence yeah. of it and the 14 yeah. stabbings that's not like a chill stabbing. right right
0: Bruises yeah. on the
1: face. Like, did he, did she say something that it made him wild? Was he on drugs? Yeah. Was he drinking? Like, I have no idea. What and they tried of to go was.
0: insanity defense. So I guess it's possible there just wasn't a motive at all. Yeah.
1: But he's a career criminal and escaped from prison. And why was no one looking for him?
0: He was, he is, that was, that's
1: a long escape. Yeah. That's the seventh He was escaped for seven months. And maybe because it's state across state. state. Yeah, it is really sad Um, and that there's no information and that. Yeah, it, it it's gruesome. and scary. And we say this a lot on this podcast, but it's like one wrong person. Yeah. And you're like, and that's it. Like, you know, it was a regular bar hanging out with dude. It's like so fucking scary and sad. So this the next case is about Jonathan Levin and he's another Bronx teacher like I said who was murdered in you know his upper west side apartment. Jesus, right? Um and he was the son of the chairman of Time Warner, Gerald M. Levin. And Kara, um Jonathan Levin actually went to Trinity College. What? Yes,
0: a fellow 19- a fellow Bantam?
1: Yeah, so in 1988, um, he graduated with an English and psychology degree. I wonder degrees. if we, like,
0: ever had any of the same teachers. Like, I wonder if he got a teacher really young that then was, like, old when I had them. Yeah. That would be int- That'd be crazy. Wow. Because I was an English major, too.
1: Wow. Um, yeah, so he did English and psych. Um, and then Jonathan chose to be an English teacher at William Howard Taft High School. So the kids liked him and he was praised with having an unusual ability to raise their self-esteem. Corey Arthur was a student in Levin's class, um, in his English class at the Taft High School um, during 1993 and 1994 school year. And he really took him under his wing. So one time in 1993, he actually wrote his teacher a thank you note, calling him his true and only friend in the world. Um, More excerpts from the letter said, you have shown me that it is all right to step in and help someone and you have shown me not all people want to use and exploit me. The note ended with, wherever I get in life, I owe it to you. And for that, I am entirely grateful. I am lucky and most happy to call John Levin my friend. Thank you. So May 30th, 1997, Corey Arthur went to Jonathan's apartment to rob him. And this is the student that like wrote these letters that Jonathan took such interest in and was really putting a lot of time and effort into this person. And his wife said that he lived for these students. And he responded to Arthur's phone call that night because of his selfless nature. Um, He cared about his students. So he got a voicemail from Corey Arthur, and it was played in court, this voicemail. And the voicemail came in at 4.55 p.m. And it said, Mr. Levin, uh, this is Corey. Pick up if you're there. It's important. So... Arthur and his accomplice, Mr. Hart, attacked Levin and tied him up with duct tape, then tortured him with a knife, including three cuts across his throat, and then shot him in the back of the fucking head by his student. And they wanted his bank code and withdrew $800 at 5.15 p.m. And so he died at age 31 years old. And this guy is fucking rich. He, like, he comes from Time Warner chairman money. If you wanted money, he would have given you money. Like, yeah, you had to murder him. You could have threatened him. And legit, um, they think that Levin was alive in between. So they think that there was like stabbing, the tying up, the torturing. Then they went to uh, use the bank card. Then they came back and shot him in the head, and then stabbed him in the chest. Police say. And this brings up, like, there was, you know, as much as with the Roseanne Quinn case, a lot of articles started coming out about, like, single women and how safe are they? And then this was a situation where there was a lot of think pieces about how accessible teachers should be to their students outside of school. And it turned uh, Levin into a symbol of public service. Police released a photo of Arthur and an offer of an $11,000 reward, and this led to a call that gave up the location of Corey. In court, the defense tried to spin a drug storyline about Levin and that Arthur was there at his apartment that night because of drugs. But an autopsy found that Mr. Levin had absolutely no drugs in his body Um, and that the two remained close and that Corey would never have killed his former teacher. This is the defense. They're like, absolutely, he would not do it. They argue that the cuts on Arthur had occurred when he tried to stop the accomplice from stabbing him and that this accomplice did everything. Prosecutors, however, said that Arthur and Levin had grown apart by May 30th, 1997 and that the former student took advantage of him to gain entrance into his apartment and the prosecution pushed that he was actually the leader of the two. His fingerprints were found on the roll of duct tape and his DNA was found on the knife used to torture him. Blood from Levin was found on Arthur's clothes. Uh, The gun that killed him was never recovered. They also argue that he would have had the most motivation to kill him since Levin, like, would recognize him. So it could have been a situation where maybe it was just supposed to be a robbing and then he's like, fuck, I don't want to go to jail. So let me murder my mentor. So November 10th, 1998, Levin's 19-year-old former student was convicted of second-degree murder. The jury acquitted him for first-degree murder, but they did get second-degree. I-, I don't know why. Um, I know his family was really upset why it wasn't first-degree murder. But I guess they couldn't prove it. The difference is, like, so murder one is automatic, like, life. And then murder two is 25 to life. So it's still a hefty sentence. The jury deliberated for 11 hours over two days, but they rejected the testimony of the prosecution's lead witness, Carlethea Weeks. So Weeks was Arthur's former girlfriend, and she testified that he confessed... The killing to her but the defense uh was like oh she has a history of hearing voices and she's a looney tune and so they didn't really take her seriously which you know we don't know we don't know anything so basically the jury ruled that prosecutors proved that arthur and the 26 year old co-defendant i'm not trying to say his first name it's m-o-u-n-t-o-u-n so mount Montune, Montune, mountain t heart i'm gonna call him heart um, that was the co-defendant. Um, so basically, the jury ruled that the prosecutors proved that Arthur and Hart committed a crime that resulted in Levin's death, but could not prove that Mr. Arthur personally killed him. So torturing him until he gave his bank code and robbing him happened, and that led to the death. But shooting someone in the back of the head, like, what the fuck? I, I really don't understand this jury. Um, Arthur was also convicted of two counts of armed robbery. When the verdict was read out loud, he shook his head and muttered to himself while everyone cheered and a few sobs from like a friend of the accused. Also, his mother sat motionless and his girlfriend did bust out weeping. Um, Hart was tried separately for second degree murder charges. He was acquitted by a sympathetic jury. um, So he was acquitted for the torturing, the stabbing, the shooting, all of it. The jury decided that he was too wasted to trust the 11-page confession he signed during an NYPD interrogation. The photo taken hours into his interrogation, he looked so fucked up that that photo is the clincher of why they did not believe the, the confession because he was, like, high as hell and drunk. He said he had four forties, a pint of cognac, smoked two huge marijuana cigarettes. I'm going to assume they were blunts. <laughs> and um, the... <laughs> so that happened the night, like, the cops arrested him. He was so fucked up that they made him sign something that he was not lucid enough to... That This is the jury. And there was no evidence for Hart like there was for Arthur. There was no hair, no fingerprints, no DNA trace. Like, there was nothing that linked Hart to the case, to the scene. Wow. Yeah. And so the Hart update that I have about him is from the New York Daily News, not the Times. So, like, I don't know. I don't know. Do we respect the Daily News? I think—I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So— Basically, he's adamant about his innocence, um, but even after that not guilty verdict, he is st- he's stuck to a life of crime. So he had been arrested numerous, numerous times on charges like criminal sale of a controlled substance, narcotics possession, possession of a defaced machine gun um, in 1999, and then he also drove on a suspended license in 2013 and 2015. Then he was part of a giant year-long investigation, joint investigation, very SVU. The NYPD and the Brooklyn DA's office basically revealed he was selling guns in Brooklyn. His phone was tapped after they got a tip about him and two undercovers spent months posing as clients who wanted to buy guns. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and so they bought 44 weapons from him, and he was ordered um, to be held without bail on dozens of these charges. According to Inmate Lookup, he is still in custody for the criminal sale from firearms, which is a first-class uh, B felony, and he got 15 years, and his earliest release date's going to be September 5th, 2033. Damn. Now— Arthur was eligible to go in front of the review board in 2022 for the, for parole. But according to the New York inmate lockup, he is still in prison and the earliest release date and parole interview that he's going to have is uh, February, 2024. And that status was updated right when I was researching. So it's um, like as of September, 2023, that's the status of where he is. Um, And then the Jonathan Levin Foundation was a nonprofit organization, uh, was established after the murder. And it created a new media center and athletic field at Taft High School. Um, And then a nearby block was even renamed Jonathan Levin Way. The school, however, closed in 2008 and then transformed into a bunch of small specialized schools to meet modern career needs. And that media school did eventually close in 2016. So... That is wow. Yeah, like so similar, so sad. So like I I, I don't know if any mur- I don't know. It's like mindless, like
0: pointless. I don't know. It's yeah. really, really sad. Yeah. Fucked. Oh my god. Teachers have it hard enough without getting murdered by their students. Um yeah, or students drifters were- from Indiana. All right. Yeah. Really bummer. Well. Thank you for doing all that research. Let's uh head into our postmortem since we don't have a guest today. Well, that was a wild episode. Uh postmortem, what are our thoughts? I guess Yeah, I mean, it is weird how sex addiction has not found its way into the public like empathy the way that other addictions have.
1: No, because people think about it because I do think that celebrity men who cheat use it as a lie. I do. Yes. So sue me. Yeah. I'm victim blaming, but I don't believe it. But because of that, we think of them and we don't think of real sex addiction, which is like, I did eat a candy. I ate the candy with the crinkles. I'm so sorry. It's (laughs) stuck to my teeth. (laughs) I thought it'd be smooth. It stuck to my teeth. Um, <laughs> but so we think about that, but we don't think about the person who's just like jerking off 15 times a day till everything's raw, you know? Yeah. We're like going out and searching for gangbangs in basements. So that we but we don't want, we don't really think about that.
0: Yeah. And I like think that's about not, it, not to it's not to kink shame if you want a gangbang in a basement, but if you like if it's affecting your life and you like absolutely have to have the gangbang in the basement or the nagging voice in your head won't leave you alone that might be a different a different thing but
1: i think everybody knows that i do. i'm not against a gangbang basement but yes. people should read the book choke that's where i learned a lot it's um i don't I, I think i i always say his name wrong but i don't care chuck Palahniuk, who wrote fight club his book choke oh. is about uh, this guy who's a sex addict and he goes to meetings and I feel like I learned, I took it as truth. And then the movie is with Sam Rockwell. And it's, pre- it's not like Fight Club where it changes stuff. It is like scene by scene pretty much the book. Oh, wow. Wait, but and, that the, was and my- the movie
0: is also called Choke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was okay. my
1: foray into sex addiction. It's all television shows. And then Joan Cusack dates a guy. Um, the flautist, the fucking flautist dude that we had on our podcast, Anton Krasnikov. Oh, yeah. uh, (laughs) Yeah. McGowan,
0: Zach McGowan.
1: Yes. So he has, he plays a character that is a sex addict too. And it gets awakened by Joan Cusack. And he's just like, the reason I said the gangbang is like, he had like a big thing of lube and he put down a tarp and he's like, Everyone's, like, we gotta do it, and she's like, I don't want to. It was yeah, it was like he <laughs> he just became crazed in a way, and so. Those are my fictional...
0: God, we got to get Joan Cusack on the fucking podcast. Once again, a plea to anyone that knows her personally, please let us know. Let's move on to our What Would Sister Peg Do for the Week. That's our segment where we direct you to uh, an organization, a blog post, an article, a book, something to give you more information about what we talked about today. I thought we could, you know, in an effort to, you know, highlight sex addiction. Point you guys to Sex Addicts Anonymous. Um, If you go to their website, you can find all kinds of resources including self-assessment tests to determine whether you suffer from sex addiction. They also provide paths to recovery and can steer people towards the closest SAA meetings. Um, And then so for more info on that, head to saa-recovery.org. Yeah, that's saa-recovery.org and that will be in our highlights, uh, our WWSPD highlight forever after we post it on our stories the day that this episode comes out. But yeah, I've had friends also with porn addiction. I think it's probably like hand in hand. So they probably can help you with that kind of thing as well.
1: And guess what? I have a movie reference to discuss porn addiction, the movie Don John with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh. It was really good. It's Julianne Moore, Scarlett Johansson, Tony Danza. Um, Brie Larson and I'm forgetting who else Danza Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like so hot in that movie and um, he starts dating Scarlett Johansson who's so hot but she's disgusted that he watches porn oh she doesn't want to watch porn she has other problems too
0: wait your Tony Danza reference just met, like reminded me that I've only watched like the first three episodes of and Just Like That so I also have that to catch up on <laughs> the worst the worst TV show I have to finish watching
1: it's just disgusting because it's so good. Like Sex and the City is just so good. I mean, everyone knows. Listen, and guess what? We'll talk about it again next week. Always and forever. Um <sighs> watch the episode Tortured, season 4, episode 16 if you know what's good for you. Um and if you want to like, you know, you know, rate star all that stuff on the internet, you can, but we don't, you know, no pressure. <laughs> so much pressure.
0: Okay. Yeah. Or Um, send us, you could send us an email to it. That's messed up podcast at Gmail. Are you checking the email? Yeah. Oh my God. The other day I just checked the email and I responded to a ton of them. Wow, because you know what? There. I was in New York. I was in New York, and I responded to people. if you're if you know, you know, you're one of the people that I just responded to after nine months because I just hadn't gotten to check the email. and but there were other people that had written recently, so they got more prompt responses. And I just was on the subway in New York just banging out responses. Damn. I got to be away from my kids. That's the thing. Um <laughs> we'll see all right, guys. You next we'll see you next week. week. Thank you so much for listening. That's messed Up is an exactly right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at that's messed up pod at gmail.com. Follow
1: the podcast on Instagram at that's messed up pod and on Twitter at messed up pod. And follow us
0: personally at Kara Clank and at glitter cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information.
1: Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien, and our associate producer, Christina Chamberlain. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker,
0: Patrick Cotner,
1: And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song, and Carly Jean Andrews for our
0: artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun-dun! Follow That's Messed Up, and SVU podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.